As we enter into our scripture reading today, our scripture gospel reading today comes to us from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Hear now these words. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, one of the cool parts about being a pastor is that you get to be a part of people's lives in very, very important moments. And a primary example is, is officiating weddings. It's an amazing moment because every wedding, I know there's always a crowd out there but whenever I'm doing a wedding, it feels like it's just the three of us up here talking about what marriage looks like and doing those vows together. Now, for every couple that I marry, I usually do three sessions of premarital counseling. And at the end of that, if they aren't a good fit, and I, I don't think they are, I won't do the wedding. I say that knowing that's never happened before. Um, it almost happened, but it hasn't happened. And one thing we always talk about as I get to know the couple about to take vows and enter into this covenant is something called idealistic distortion. Idealistic distortion. Say it with me. Idealistic distortion. Now, I know you can say it, but what is it? Idealistic distortion is the extent to which a person distorts their relationship in a positive direction. It's also been referred to as rose-colored glasses syndrome. It means that somebody, whether they know it or not, they're unwilling to acknowledge that their feelings about the relationship and or their partner Uh, they might not be realistic. They may be idealistic. Now, I know this is a shocker, but sometimes a couple that is about to get married goes into the marriage with rose-colored glasses. (laughs) They view the relationship in maybe an overly positive manner, a little bit of idealistic distortion. What does that look like? Well, for an engaged couple, it means everything's great. There's nothing wrong with anybody. No conflict whatsoever. To be Idealistic as you get married means that my partner and I are always going to be in love. There will certainly be no trouble down the road at any point. There are no weaknesses in our relationship. We're solid, and I don't foresee any on the horizon. We are prepared. We're ready for this. Marriage is going to be a walk in the park. Perhaps some of you, perhaps there's some in this room, some of you were like that before you got married. It happens to many of us because why? Because you're so in love. Everything's new. Everything's happy and funny and good. That's what new love is like. Of course, In studies, when you test the same couples after they're married for a while, after the newness wears off, most will no longer test at that idealistic distortion level. After a bit of time, most begin to view their relationships from a more realistic lens. Why? Because you share a bathroom. (laughs) You you do laundry from the same machine. You, You have to clean up the house together, the kitchen. When we were dating, Adair thought every joke I told was funny. She, left it, she laughed at every joke. That's idealistic distortion. And now Adair is a little bit more discerning. I'm honestly batting about three out of ten, which is not bad. 
but things did change a little bit, and I think that's the natural progression of any relationship or friendship or anything. You go from ideal to real. And to be honest, I like the real. I prefer the actual lenses to the rose-colored ones. Of course, I don't think that idealistic distortion is siloed to relationships. I think it, it sums up a lot of how we approach the new, exciting adventures that are, that are often a part of our lives, whether it's starting, you're starting college or grad school or getting that new job you wanted or having a first child or perhaps entering into retirement. Whatever that new adventure is for you, I think sometimes we can approach it with a little bit of idealistic distortion. It's hard not to, to expect the best, even to expect perfection. But if we're honest, the real journey begins when we take those glasses off, those rose-colored lenses, and begin to do the real work in the real world. That's when we experience real commitment, real growth, real life. I can imagine for the disciples that there was a certain amount of that idealistic distortion when Jesus called them. Connor shared that story last week, if you remember, of Jesus walking along the seashore, and he calls Andrew, Peter, James, and John to follow him. Drop your nets and follow me, he says. And what happens? Mark says, they immediately go. By the way, Mark is the shortest gospel, 16 chapters, and he uses the word immediately 41 times. He loves that word. He's urgent. Mark is always urgent. My preaching professor, Tom Long, always said that if the gospel of Mark were a church building, the paint would be peeling, everything would be in disrepair, nobody would be there, because the gospel of Mark is all about the mission. And the mission is urgent. They're not in here. They're out there. It's right now. It needs to be attended to immediately. The disciples follow Jesus now, immediately, because they see something in Jesus, something worth following, something that will change the world as they know it. And they're excited. And like anything new, I'm sure there's a little bit of distortion, idealism going on. I'm sure these new disciples are excited. They're pumped up. They're ready to change the world because, I don't know if you know this, there was a vibe in the area anyway. There was a feeling of expectation in the air. There were a lot of messiahs coming along. People were looking for some change. It was a hotbed. Just 30 years before this, when Herod the Great died, a man named Judas came along, gathered a bunch of people, stormed Sephorus, the Roman city in Galilee, seized the palace, and Judas saw himself as the new king the new Messiah, but it didn't last. The same year, a guy named Simon stormed Jericho, built him an army, even put a crown on himself, all to depose Rome, but it didn't work out. Even 15 years after Jesus, a man named Theodos rose up and claimed to be the Messiah. He took a crowd of people, marched to the Jordan River, was going to part it until the Romans got there and ended it. People wanted a Messiah. So there was that feeling, something was coming. There's this thirst for leadership. Someone is surely coming to overthrow the empire and reinstate the rule of God. Everyone's just waiting for the right one, the right Messiah to come along. And when Jesus comes along, I'm sure they've they've heard some stories, some rumblings. I'm sure they've heard of this guy. Maybe not, but then there he is walking along the seashore and he says, follow me. In other words, he says to him, let's do this. That's my translation. Come on, guys, let's do this. And they say, yeah, we're in. All, I'm sure, with a, little, with a few visions of grandeur, a new, of a new way of life, a new kingdom to be a part of. You see it later, if you remember when the disciples asked, hey, Jesus, when you get into power, who can sit at your right and your left? Can I be in charge of stuff? Can I be a part of the round table? Can I be in your cabinet? Which one of us is going to, what's the pecking order? How, how are you going to lay that out? Let me know. Perhaps they think that Jesus is going to be like the others, someone who takes a crown for himself, and give the Jewish people their freedom once and for all. 
They heard him say, if you remember, just before this, the time has come, the kingdom is near. And then they get a glimpse of what the kingdom looks like. They get a taste of what, what it is they've signed on to. In the middle of a teaching session, some, something they had expected from Jesus, something unexpected occurs. During the worship service, a man walks down the aisle and interrupts Jesus, yelling at the top of his lungs all kinds of things. What are you doing here? Nazarene, I know what you're doing. You've come to destroy us. There's an evil at work in this man. There's some demons there. And immediately Jesus casts them out. And all of a sudden, the storm subsides. The convulsions come to an end and the man becomes calm and whole. And he's different now. And the crowd looks on in amazement. They start sharing with one another, whispering to one another, what was, what was that? What just happened? The demon did what, what he said. He shuts up evil and he casts it out. He calms the storms. The whole room starts chatting. And there in the back, I imagine, are four disciples, James, John, Andrew, and Peter. And, and I could imagine them just being shocked, silent, mouths hanging open. I can imagine in their minds, they're thinking what's been uttered in most action movies ever made. This is, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> yeah, what, same laugh. I got the same one laugh last service. <laughs> Thanks. That Kathy thinks Kathy. <laughs> but I can picture these four turning to each other and acknowledging the elephant in the room. This is going to be different than what I thought it would be. The newness is gone. The honeymoon's over. This guy isn't like the other messiahs. Idealistic distortion that led them to drop everything immediately and follow, it's gone. And a certain amount of realism is starting to creep in. This isn't going to be easy, they say to one another. This is going to be different. This could be quite a journey. And from here on out, the disciples begin to realize that the faith that led them to drop their nets and follow is not a one-time thing. Indeed, following Jesus, it turns out, is a journey. It's a process. A scholar and author, Eugene Peterson, calls following Jesus, I love this, listen to this, he calls following Jesus a long obedience in the same direction. Faith is not something we put on once and we're good. Faith is something we have to step into every single day. I've seen it many times that when somebody makes a commitment, it feels great. It feels like the world has changed. Everything is going to be different. And there's a certain amount of idealism there, I think. But soon after, the moment of commitment, the real world confronts that someone and they realize that a life of following Jesus is going to take an amazing amount of prayer and maybe even a little bit of effort. In other words, I can't simply agree to follow Jesus one day and then tomorrow's going to take care of itself. It doesn't work like that. This faith is a partnership. God has invited us into it. And a partnership means that we have a part to play. Richard Rohr calls it a divine dance. I love that phrase. I remember as a sixth grader, Elaine in the chapel of Camp Blisson, in Dahlonega, I was a sixth grader. I, was, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ in that chapel. I remember I decided to follow him. I remember the music and the community that was surrounding me at that moment. I remember feeling full of the Spirit, full of grace. I was on top of the world. Maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe not. But you know the bummer of that whole experience? I had to leave camp and go back to middle school. <laughs> I had to go back to sixth grade. And I think I soon realized that this following Jesus thing wasn't going to be as easy at school as it was at camp. I think for all of us, a life of faith 
can feel that way. It can be overwhelming at times. To go after the heart of God and try to shape our lives to look more like Jesus, honestly, it's not easy. It really is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a movement of your life, of all your choices, toward the thing of greatest concern, toward following Jesus, and it takes time. Peterson writes, this is not the kind of quick change that takes place in a telephone booth as Clark Kent morphs into Superman. It is the slow, gradual change of the infant into the adult. For this kind of change, there, you can't be in a hurry. We're involved in something that stretches into eternity. You can't see it happen. You can only see that it does happen. Just as you can't see children grow, but only that they grow. It's a slow process. And it can seem daunting if we think of the scope. But perhaps we shouldn't. Perhaps we should focus on the smaller picture. Perhaps following Jesus was always meant to be exactly that. Following one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, one choice, one moment. Honestly, if I break it down that way, it kind of seems almost possible. It seems maybe even doable. There's a great line in a song uh, from the Disney movie Frozen 2, greatly superior to its uh, first movie. I know that's uh, controversial to say. There's a great line of song, and it goes like this. When it's clear that everything will never be the same again, then I'll make the choice to hear the voice and do the next right thing. I think that sums up an, uh, an active life of faith. I think that sums up a call to discipleship and loving our neighbor. Do the next right thing. Carl Jung put it like this. If you do with conviction the next and most necessary thing, you are always doing something meaningful. With conviction if you do with conviction, the next and most necessary thing, the next right thing, one step at a time, following Jesus in the same direction. One of the things that sets Wesleyan theology apart is this idea John Wesley believed in. It's called Christian perfection. And it is such a part of our heritage and, and faith as Methodists that when I stood before the bishop to be ordained, I had to say, I do, to the following question, do you believe that you can be made perfect in this life? I had to say yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't be ordained. Um, but I had to say, I do. And at first, that's laughable. Only a person with a hefty amount of idealistic distortion might even think to agree with that. Perfect? Here? Me? But when John Wesley talked about perfection, he meant that you can be made perfect in love in this life. He believed that if you follow Jesus closely enough, God might just cause love to flow so unconditionally from you that every once in a while, a decision you make might be made completely from a place of love. That's perfection. It means for a moment, you've been so molded by God, so shaped by the love of God, that your intentions might be completely shaped by that same love. God's love becomes second nature. Love just flows from you, even if just for a second. You are so in step behind Jesus, following so closely that the next and most necessary thing, the next right thing you do is done purely out of love. And Wesley thought it was possible. And I do too. Because I've seen it. I've seen it happen in so many of the saints in this room right now. And so many who have gone before, I've seen a few of you follow Jesus 
so closely that there are moments where I've witnessed your intentions covered in the dust of your rabbi, shaped by the love of your Savior, so filled with love that it can only be considered a moment of perfection. My great uncle was like that. If you've heard me preach, you've probably heard me talk about him. <laughs> as long as I knew him, every time we spoke, every time we interacted, I knew something was different. Only when I went to seminary and learned words like Christian perfection from Wesley's theology did I have the right words to describe him. He was a man perfected in love. Every time we shared life together, I was sharing life with a man who had followed so closely to Jesus. You could feel the warmth and the joy and the grace just when you got near him. He was somebody that had boiled faith down to one thing, doing the next right thing, being fully present with somebody right in front of him, one step at a time. That's all it was for him. That was his faith. Perhaps, maybe you've known somebody like that. Someone who loved you so well that occasionally you, you could swear you just glimpsed perfection. You saw moments of the love of Jesus. That was my great uncle Ben. And part of me thinks we named our son after him to remind us that when storms arise, when things become difficult, when we're faced with a harsh realism coming into contact with our idealism, perhaps when we say the name Ben, we might remember a man who was so perfected in love and made following Jesus as easy as doing the next right thing. I don't know if it's going to work. I'll let you know. <laughs> but maybe when we remember Uncle Ben, we might remember the one he followed. So may you know that there are moments in our lives when the newness wears off. It just happens. <laughs> but don't feel so alone. You know that the disciples are there experiencing the same thing. May you know that storms will come, that faith may become hard. But take heart, because following Jesus may be as simple as doing the next right thing. Perhaps not easy, but it'll definitely be simple. May the saints of your past and your present, those perfected in love, remind you that a close walk with Jesus is possible, and I'd probably say recommended, too. And may you embark on this journey, may you continue on this path, on this long obedience in the same direction, and may he who began a good work in you be faithful to complete it. Let us pray. Gracious God, we're thankful for the saints that you place before us, the people you place in our lives that show us glimpses of what your love looks like, show us glimpses of what your kingdom on this earth might one day appear to be. And God, we confess that sometimes it is difficult to continue this work. Sometimes it is overwhelming. But God, we ask for simple reminders. We ask for your spirit to be a part of our lives, to inhabit our hearts, and to remind us that it may be just as simple as doing the next right thing. That whoever might be in front of us might be the person you've placed there. And a conversation, a simple conversation, a simple action may be your purpose. Make us followers of Jesus, O oh God. Help us to drop our nets and to follow immediately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.